Okay, well, we're ready to go on uh, um, Eternal Rewards number 12. So we've gone on quite a journey with all of these studies. And uh, I wanted to uh, go back and just touch an area that's really quite an important area, and that is the need for faithfulness. And I want to look again at the parables of the talents and the pounds, or the talents and the miners. And uh, I want to just, uh, we're going to look at those, and I'm going to just approach it a little bit differently. And uh, because when people, when Christians hear the, these messages, they struggle to think it might apply to them. So I want to really focus on that and show you just in the parable, particularly the one, these two parables, how very clearly the focus of Jesus is on Christians and Christian stewardship. And these are not parables for the unsaved. So uh, the two stories, they're Matthew 25 verses 14 to 30, which is the parable of the talents. And Luke 19, 11 to 27, that's the parable of the miners. They're quite similar. They look quite similar, but they are really quite different. But for, for what we're doing today, it's quite good if you watch or see the two together. And uh, when Jesus is teaching a parable, it's a story with a spiritual truth involved. And so some of the details have specific prophetic application. Others are just part of the story. So we're going to open that up. So we'll read the parable of the talents. I'll leave it to you to read the parable of the miners. And uh, it's in the context uh, of Jesus teaching the Sermon on the Mount, not the Sermon on the Mount, the sermon uh, uh, where he's answering questions from the disciples. What is the sign of the destruction of the temple? What is the sign of your coming in the end times? And so he's talked about the destruction of the temple. And then he's gone on to give three parables, one about servants, one about the virgins, five wise and five, five uh, foolish, and now he's gone on also another parable about the servants. And so three parables, just one after the other. Then he talks about later on the end time judgment of the nations. So these three parables all work together. And this one of the talents matches very closely the one in Luke 19, where he talks about the pounds. Let's read it then. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability, and immediately he went on a journey. He who received the five talents went and traded them and made another five, hundredfold increase. He who received two gained two more also. He who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and bought other five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents beside. And he said, the Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. He also received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter the joy of your Lord. And he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown, gathering where you've not scattered seed. I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. And, but his Lord answered him and said, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I haven't sown, and gather where I haven't, have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I'd have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has, more will be given, he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the other parable in Luke 19, 
uh, is got a little slightly different context. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. So he said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom in return. He called his ten of his servants and delivered to them ten miners and said to them, do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. And it was so that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he then commanded the servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your miners earned ten miners. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you are faithful with very little, have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Master, your miner has earned five miners. Likewise, he said, You be also over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your miner which you kept put away, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap where you did not sow. And he said to him, Out of your mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew I was an austere man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the miner from him and give it to him who has ten miners. And they said to him, But master, he has ten miners. And then he replied, For I say to you that everyone who has uh, will, uh, will be given, and from him who does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here these enemies of mine who did what want me to reign over them and slay them before me. Okay, so again, the story for both parables is very similar. The master goes to a trip to a far country. In one it says he's going to receive a kingdom in return, and then he entrusts the, student, the servants with his goods while he's away. And in the parable of the talents, he entrusts according to capacity, ability to manage, and in the parable of the miners, everyone gets the same amount. So there's a bit of a difference there. Uh, when the master returns, he evaluates each servant on the stewardship of his goods and the increase he's made. And clearly, his expectation is gain or increase. A gain represents a degree of faithfulness, what's been entrusted. And in response to a gain, he's then given a reward or recompense according to what he's gained. So the two faithful servants who made gain, they receive reward. The one who uh, was unfaithful and did not make any gain, but just merely conserved or preserved, he suffered loss. So uh, just looking at the context for them, and then we want to look at the prophetic warning. And uh, in the first one, the, the, in the parable, sorry, the parable of the uh, miners, the setting is on the road to Jericho. Zacchaeus has just been converted. They see the tremendous change in Zacchaeus. And uh, so the crowd gathered, and they expected that Jesus is about to restore his kingdom. So the context for that parable is everyone is expecting that the kingdom is going to come now. He's going to go to Rome. He's going to take over or he's going to take, sorry, uh, overcome the Romans in some way. He's going to introduce the kingdom. And so everyone is crowding around him expecting to be the king. And so he told them the parable to make it clear what's really going to happen. And so he tells the story. They were familiar with the story. They understood that in terms of what had been happening already politically, locally. And uh, so he tells the story and basically he wants them to see that there is a space between him receiving his kingdom and returning in which student servants are going to be entrusted with something to do on his behalf. In the setting with the uh, parable with the, uh, the, the um, talents, it's different. It's in the context of end time warning about the coming of the Lord. So it's set in the middle of three or some teaching around the end times and particularly warnings. So here's what we understand prophetically. So when you look at the parables, they're a story with a, a meaning uh, that has an application straight away. 
they usually have within them some kind of prophetic aspect concerning the coming of the kingdom. And that's very true with this. So the parables cover the period from the Lord leaving or the nobleman leaving and him returning. It covers that entire period. And so at the start of it, he's about to leave. At the end of it, he returns. So the parable then, both parables, cover the entire church age. So they cover the period from when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven until he returns. So when you're reading it, you've got to think prophetically, there's, a, there's aspects of these parables have not yet happened. They will happen. So when Jesus returns, the Bible is very clear, he'll return to establish his kingdom. And what he's going to need is he's going to need servants that can share with him in the responsibility of that kingdom. So before he departs, he sets a plan in motion. Here's the plan. He will distribute to all of his servants talents or minors or opportunities. Every servant will have an opportunity. And uh, he wants to, his plan is, I want to know when I come back, who can I entrust working with me in establishing my kingdom? Many people sort of think that Jesus is going to come back and he's just going to do it all himself. We do it with angels. But the plan of God is that the, the advancement of his kingdom through the earth will be through people. It's always been that plan. It's never any dis different. So he sets a plan in place and the plan is a plan. How can I select the people that can work with me and be entrusted with roles of honor and responsibility and authority in the coming kingdom? Here's what I'll do. I'll use this season called the church age, which for most of us is the course of our life. And over the course of our life, I'm going to give you an opportunity to prove your faithfulness so you can qualify for what I have ahead for you. So he deliberately places a period of time between when he departs and when he returns. That period of time covers about 2,000 years or a bit more, and that enables or allows generations to rise and go. And from all of those generations, God is looking in every generation for people who will serve him faithfully that he can then raise up to participate in the kingdom. And of course, when he returns, there'll be a generation that is alive when he returns and will receive their reward immediately. So there's a prolonged period between his departure and return in which servants in every generation I've been giving their opportunity to qualify for what God has ahead. So if you understand that is the plan, then you understand that every day on this earth is your day to qualify for what Christ has when he comes. If you don't understand that's the plan, then every day has got no sense of purpose or accumulation towards a grand climax and a grand reward. So his plan is in operation right now. And the key issue in Jesus' plan is how, you, uh, how the servants demonstrate their faithful service in his absence. So that's it. It's a really simple plan. What are you doing with the time and the talents and the opportunities and giftings you have in the course of your life? God is watching every aspect of it, and he has in mind, this is your apprenticeship. This is your qualification period. This is the time you develop within yourself the qualities needed to partner with him in establishing his kingdom. So the key issue then is uh, faithful service to him in his absence. Now, other parables uh, looked at different things. So the parable of the virgins looked, for example, at the whole issue of their intimacy with the Lord, 
their built in prayer, their personal relationship with him. The last week study that we did uh, was on the transformation process in our life. And this one, we're returning now back to the faithfulness. So uh, in Luke 16 and verse 10 through to 12, he says this, whoever's faithful in that which is least or very little, he will also be faithful in much. So in other words, Jesus does, he's not worried about what you have or how little it is you have. He's saying that if you're faithful with you have very little, you show and demonstrate that when you're given much, you'll also be faithful as well. And uh, so at stake, of course, are the true riches. In Luke 16, 11, if you've not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? If you've not been faithful in that which is another man's, who will give you what's your own? So right there in that teaching of Luke, he explains what he's looking for. He's looking for faithfulness, and he's looking in at least three dimensions. One, uh, how faithful you are in the little matters of life, and we'll outline what they might look like later on. Secondly, are you faithful with money, with the handling and management of your money? And thirdly, because your money represents your life, and they're, the, they're, they're an entrustment from God. And thirdly, are you faithful in serving someone else? And so all three areas are vital requirements for faithfulness, to demonstrate faithfulness. Faithfulness in small things, faithfulness in things which are very little, that are not seen by anyone but are seen by God, faithfulness with your finances and the way you manage and handle them and invest them, faithfulness also in how you serve other people, which involves in the church, it involves in your family, it involves in, in life, it involves in your work, and so on. So uh, the focus is not how much you've been entrusted with. Now that puts then everyone on a level playing field because we tend to look and see others more gifted, more talented, and we tend to think, oh, well, they got so much. But actually, that's not what God is looking for. He's not worried, on, or the focus is not at all on how much you're entrusted. The focus entirely is what you do with it. And so every believer is on a personal journey to discover and to develop faithfulness. That's what God is looking for, your capacity to take responsibility and partner with him in establishing his kingdom in the earth. And so he's designed a plan. The plan is very simple. Who is going to be faithful? Who can I trust, in other words? Who can I rely upon? Who is dependable? And so rather than have some magical process, it's a very simple process. God just observes how you do your life now. And from that, he's able to assess, are you trustworthy? Are you reliable? Are you faithful? Are you dependable? Really simple. And of course, looking around at people, you see that many, many are not faithful at all. Faithfulness is a missing quality in so many people. So the goods entrusted are small, but the possibility for the future is great. Faithful in small things, I'll make you ruler over many things. Faithful in this, I'll make you ruler over cities. So he's trying to actually just not specify what he will actually entrust to us, but it, it involves little now, but much then. So he's trying to highlight the difference between what's at stake for us and what's involved now. So it doesn't matter what small level of responsibility, gifting, or anything you have, it's what you do with it is the very important thing. So you see that demonstrated in the parable of the talents, where one had five and gained another five, that's a hundredfold increase. One had two, gained another two, a hundredfold increase. God did not make any mention of the amounts they had, just that they were faithful with it. Both were equally productive, both were given the same reward. In the parable of the pounds, it's different. The parable of the pounds, they all started with one each. One got 10, and so he receives a greater reward, 
greater diligence, greater focus, greater effort. He's proven himself to be extremely productive and is rewarded accordingly. So it's very powerful, the, the teaching in it. Now, here's the thing I want you to see. This is why we're revisiting this parable. I had not seen this before, but when I saw it, I realized I don't know how I've missed this. The, main, the focus on both of these parables is the servant who fails. How do we know that? Well, if you count up the number of verses that talk about the servant who fails, you find there's seven on the servant who fails. If you look at the number of verses about the, ser- the other two servants, there's only three for each of them. So when you look at the way, when someone has got a lot to say about something, it's because it's more important. And so the focus here on the seven verses uh, are on the, the, the person who, uh, who, who had only the one talent. And uh, if you look back in the two parables prior to that, the parable of the virgins, five wise, five foolish, same thing. There are more verses on the foolish virgins than on the wise. You go back one more parable into Matthew 24, and there it is again. There are more verses on the foolish servant than on the wise servant. So three parables in a row, and the greater focus is on the person who failed, the servant who failed. So that means that the, the servant or the identity of the, of the third servant is absolutely key for the parable. And uh, so uh, now here's the thing. If you don't think it could be you, you'll miss the point of the parable. So we can draw or focus on many aspects of the parable, the nobleman going and coming back, the coming of the Lord, on the rewards and what the rewards might be. But if we just take what's written there, the focus is on the third servant, the unfaithful one, because Jesus wants to warn that this is possible for any believer. See? Now, if we don't think that that servant could be me, and that I could be the one who, who suffers loss, then I'm going to miss the application of this. It'll just be a message. It'll be a great message. But I miss the warning that's inherent in it that the, if, if, the, if the servant is me, I could be the one who loses. I could be the one in outer darkness. And so we automatically resist that that servant could be me. It's like when you read the story, you, no one puts himself as the third servant. They think, oh. I won't be the five-teller one. Maybe I'm the two-teller one. So we kind of put ourselves somewhere in the middle mentally because it's troubling to think we could be the third one. And yet the point of this is it's all about the third one. And here's the, here's the, uh, here's the point of it. If we live and act like the third servant, we will experience what he experienced. Yeah. Quite. That, see? So, so if we live and act and treat the talents and the things that God has given us the same way he did, we will have the same experience he did. Now, there's a lot of reasons why we could uh, uh, show that this third servant is a believer. Now, there are many Christians, when they read this, uh, they don't recognize the third servant as a believer. So they'll explain, oh, he must be unsaved. Uh, They explain, well, it can't be a Christian. And I want to show how very clearly I want to show that that third servant is a Christian, therefore it applies to every person, and therefore it's the focus of Jesus' warning. So here's a few things or reasons why we can say that third servant is a believer, and he represents the majority of Christians. 
because the majority of Christians are not five talent, two talent, they're one talent people. The, the warning of this is to his disciples not to be that person. And so let me give you some reasons why the servant has to be a Christian. Number one, Jesus calls them his servants. He delivered, he called his servants to himself. And that word servant is the word doulos, a slave, someone who's been purchased or bought for a price, devoted to someone else. And the Bible tells us we have been bought with a price. And uh, so Jesus calls the people his own servant and he gives them an entrustment and that makes them his servant. So very clearly, we're bought with a price. We belong to God. We're his servants. Second, every believer is called a servant of Christ. So we're uh, all called servants of Christ. You find that in Colossians 3, where he talks this, for people who are serving, uh, who are believers serving in a, in, a, in a cultural setting. He said, then he said, notice this. He makes a statement. He said, um, uh, servants or bond servants obey in all things your masters according to the flesh not with eye services men pleases but with sincerity of heart fearing God and they said for whatever you do do it heartily as to the Lord and not men knowing from the Lord you receive the reward of inheritance for you serve the Lord Jesus Christ so notice what he's saying that even if you're employed in secular work you are still the servant of the Lord in that place if you're a mother you're the servant of the Lord in the home. If you're a father, you're the servant of the Lord in the home. If you're a young person, you're a servant of the Lord in a school. Every believer is the servant of the Lord. Not only that, here's a third reason. Every believer has their own personal assignment or service. Ephesians 2.10, where his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand, we should walk in them. So our works are things we do and they're the basis of our service and for developing faithfulness. So what are the, here's another couple of reasons. The third servant is entrusted along with the other servant with the Lord's goods. So God doesn't entrust his goods to the unsaved. He doesn't give the gifts of the spirit to the unsaved. He doesn't give faith to the unsaved. So we see here that clearly this third servant is actually a believer. Not only that, you see there, if you look in the parables, the three servants all have to give account at the same time. Whereas the Bible tells us that the accounting for believers is all together at the judgment seat of Christ. The accounting for the rest of the world uh, and unbelievers is all at the end of the millennial reign. So the fact they're all called to account together points also to the fact they must be believers. Uh, the last couple of things there, uh, the three servants, all three servants are judged solely on their works, not on their positional status. So notice this, when you get saved, you become a child of God. You have a position, a status as a child of God. Okay? So what is evaluated is not your status, but what you did once you had that status. So it's your stewardship as a servant. And in the parable of the uh, miners, uh, you notice that you've got the three servants. Then the next group of people are the, ser are the, are the citizens who refuse to let the master rule and he deals with them differently. So we've got his servants, and then you've got those who refused his rule. The ones who refused his rule are clearly unsaved. People who have rejected Christ, Jews and Gentiles, and they're dealt with differently to the servants. The servants are all called to give account for stewardship all at the same time. The citizens who refused his rule, who resisted Christ, would not have him and rejected his rule over them, rejected his kingdom. Then God deals with them differently and on a different basis. So... 
very clearly the servant is a Christian. Okay, so now we're going to look a bit further about the third servant. And I want to look at then uh, how did he fail? How did he fail? What's the lesson we need to learn? How did he fail? And uh, we'll cover some things. will be a little that we've done before, but uh, the main focus I want to look at is this third servant. So how did he fail? Here's how he failed. He did not place value on what God had entrusted him. He undervalued what God had given him. Now, you think about it. Many people look and they see, I'm not as gifted as someone else. I haven't got as much education as someone else. I'm not as smart as someone else. I haven't got the training someone else have. I'm not a good talker like someone else is. So in other words, what we do is we make other people the focus and we compare ourselves unfavorably and then undervalue what we do have. That's a big problem for Christians. So if you look through the Bible, God is not interested in what you have. He's interested in what you do with what you've got. So for example, Moses, he said, what do you got in your hand? He said, oh, I just got a shepherd's rod. rod. And what God said, okay, I'll use that. I'll deliver a nation with a shepherd's rod. Uh, the lady uh, that Elijah visited, he said, well, she I got nothing. We're about to die. He said, well, what do you have in your house? He said, oh, I just got a little pot of oil. Okay, that'll do. And the, the power of God came on that. And then the whole house was fed for a year. So you find constantly the stories where people look down on the little they had, but when it was yielded to the Lord, it became very powerful and very effective. What about the feeding the 5,000? How do we feed 5,000 people? How are we gonna do that? Well, has anyone got anything? Oh yeah, one boy's got a little bit of lunch, a couple of some bread and some, and some fish. He said, okay, that'll do. Let's bring that and make that available. And then that can then minister to a crowd. So every one of us have got to not look at how much I have or what I could do and, and then be limited in our thinking and contain ourselves, we should take what we have, present it to the Lord and let him bless it. So the blessing and anointing comes on what we have when we make it available to him and then he can do far more through one little act of kindness than you could ever imagine. So it's very easy to look and think I haven't done anything and then find that actually the little that you did carried on and had huge impact. I remember um, hearing a story of a guy in a church and he was, um, he was only casual in his attendance at church and uh, he just would come once a month and uh, the pastor discovered he, he just loved vehicles, loved cars and so the pastor approached him and said, hey listen, hey, um, there's, a, there's a lady just not far from where you live and you, you pass her place on the way, would you like to, how about you take her to church next Sunday when you come? And he said, yeah, sure, I could do that. A very little thing. And so uh, the, he picked up the lady and took her to church. And uh, anyway, uh, the pastor asked him the next month, you know, would you do that again? So he did it again. And then he decided, actually, he'd like to do it a bit more often. So he started to take her every fortnight. And then he took her every week. And soon he's bringing her every week. And then um, the, pa the pastor just kept encouraging him and, uh, and appreciating what he had. And then... Uh, eventually the guy ended up in charge of the whole transport ministry for the whole church. It's a big church, 5,000. And he, he got such a passion and a joy out of just that started with just picking up that first person. And he had a huge impact with it. Uh, I heard another story too, which is very powerful. And this woman was a hairdresser. And she's thinking, what, what can I do? And and uh, the Lord, and, and anyway, she heard the message there about the talents and she said, well, I, Lord, what can I do with what I've got? You know, I, I, I'm, I don't know a lot of the Bible, but what I can do is I can cut people's hair. 
And so he said, and any she's walking through the street and she went past a strip club and the Lord said, go and offer the girls there to do their hair before they perform. Now, of course, you understand that's a really radical thought for many church people. So she went and went in and they said, yeah, what do you want? She said, well, she said, I'm a hairdresser. I'd love to uh, just come for the girls, uh, you know, before they um, perform and I'll, I'd like to just do their hair for them, make them look beautiful. And they were shocked. And she said, I'll do it for free. And so she would come. And then, of course, she's got time sitting there with the girls. And so she began to talk to them. And, and the girls were really happy. They're having their hair done for free. And she was very clever what she did. And uh, anyway, eventually she said she brought something along for them, messages for them and whatever, and would share a little bit with them. Eventually, all of them got saved. You remember, it was just a simple little thing she had. But with the hand of God on it, it produced a huge result. So here's how the third servant failed. He, he undervalued what had been given. He didn't value his importance. And interesting enough, Paul talks to Timothy the danger of the same thing. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 14, don't neglect or look down on or minimize the gift that's in you, which is given you with prophecy by the laying on the hands of the eldership. So that word neglect means to be careless or make light of or consider not much value. He said, don't do that, but rather meditate and then give yourself to that gift. So again, it's the same kind of concept. Don't look down on the things God's entrusted to you, but pray over them and just use them to what you have, to do what you can with them. And uh, so, so, so the first thing then, he undervalued the gift. Secondly, he didn't understand the plan that Jesus had to qualify him for sharing and rulership. Now, you imagine if you understood clearly what's at stake for you being faithful now, you'd be faithful now. So clearly he didn't understand. And the plan of the king was use your time now to develop faithfulness and prove faithfulness. And when I return, because you've proven faithful, I will entrust you much more. Uh, in uh, Revelations 2.26, it said, He who overcomes and keeps my works to the end, him I'll give power over the nations. So you notice then God's intention is to put us in a place of royal authority in the coming kingdom. And uh, if we don't understand the plan, we won't prepare. If we don't prepare, we'll have the same experience that servant had. So notice how Jesus described him. He described him as wicked, lazy, and unprofitable. Exactly the opposite of the other two, where he said, well done, good and faithful servant. So he called him wicked, meaning you have a, uh, your behavior, it's not evil, your behavior causes me anguish because I plan so much for you. Your behavior has a negative influence on others because they're discouraged by your lukewarmness. He called him lazy or slothful. So basically he's saying, you, you lack any passion or diligence in serving Jesus and your influence is quite negative on others. So you notice in contrast to Paul's warning in Romans 12, 11, where he says, don't be slothful in business, but be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So God's desire, whatever we do, be passionate, be fervent in spirit, and in all you do, serve the Lord in it. And uh, the fourth thing about the servant is he made nothing of his life. He just didn't do anything. His, this is what he did wrong. He withheld his abilities and time from serving the Lord. Now, doesn't that to describe large numbers of Christians? They will come to a service so they can be blessed, and it's great to do that but they withhold their abilities and their time from serving God. So he hasn't demonstrated love and loyalty uh, in the master's absence. He's herded, hoarded when he should have conserved, uh, should have invested. 
He's got no sense of responsibility. His focus is entirely on himself. So notice he's not thinking about a test and failing a test. He's just basically disqualifying himself as day and day go by and there's no service. So essentially his wickedness is just the failure to be a good steward. Wow. So in both parables, the Lord scolds him. Well, at least you could have given what you have to someone else and got the interest. What he's saying then is, what I've entrusted to you is with the expectation it'll produce fruit. Idea? So how did Jesus describe the other two servants? Well, well done, good and faithful servants. And well done is because they did well. So it's not just a matter of being a worshiper. Uh, we need to actually apply our life to serving the Lord in the, in the assignments he's given us as well. Uh, they remain diligent and engaged. They were throughout the appointed season of their lifetime. They were faithful and productive. And that's really our, our life testimony because we saw this, these uh, eternal riches to be gained. We saw the message of the kingdom, understood what is at stake. We made then Matthew 6.33, our life scripture, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All the things will be added to you that you need. And so we've gone through hard times, gone through good times, gone through challenging times. There's many different times we've gone through, but all of those times are all God is watching. How did you handle yourself? How did you treat people? How did you deal with what was given to you? Were you fruitful? Were you productive? Were you faithful in the midst of all of that? And so, of course, now, well, I'm 74. Joyce, same age. So we're at the season of our life now where a large portion of our life, 50 years, has gone by serving the Lord. We've got a portion left. So all those years mean much more important to remain faithful and true and not say, oh, well, I've done my dash. I should quit right now. You understand? That's what keeps you with passion and fire because you understand the truth of the story here. So we must be clear in it then. Um, it's not the possession of your talents that determines the reward. It's just what you do with them. What did you do with what you had? So many people look, I've got nothing. Well, you've got a home. Why don't you bring people into your home? Can you cook? Make someone a meal. It just goes on and on and on. There are no limits to what we can do. Uh, so it must be clear then, as a con this is what we're trying, the point I'm trying to make, all three servants are believers, and the difference between the two that were rewarded and the one that was not was just all about their stewardship. And so every one of us is going to face an accountability to God according to what we have done. So we can receive reward or we can suffer loss just that they did. And here's the bottom line. It's not a parable for the unsaved. It's a parable for those who've received Christ to be engaged in serving. If we act and live like the servants, the one servant or the third servant, we experience what he experienced. So, wow. Now, I, will just look, I want to just get to the point of what it means, what faithfulness looks like. But if I just touch on then the reward and the loss, there may be some people watching or listening to this message that weren't in any of the other messages. So essentially, the reward is ruling with Christ in his coming kingdom. So in the parable of the talents, they're all giving different amount according to different capacity. And the, uh, the outcome is that they enter into the joy, they celebrate with the master, they partner with him, they enter his joy at their success, and they will be put ruler over many things. And uh, because they've been faithful and they've produced increase, they're commended, they're invited to enter and experience their master's joy, and they're both given a responsibility and authority in establishing his kingdom. 
Okay then, so in the parable of the miners, they're given different amounts, the same opportunity. The one who's rewarded uh, more is the one who did more with what he had. So notice there, greater diligence and fruitfulness, greater rewards, equal diligence and faithfulness, equal rewards. The loss is, uh, involves exclusion from both stewardship and ruling in the coming kingdom. So we see here the student who received, uh, the servant who received one talent is considered wicked and lazy because he put no effort into stewarding, no effort into increase. He was rebuked, so he suffered then a rebuke. He suffered then loss. Take the talent away and give it to him, the one who has 10 talents. So he loses stewardship. He now, the opportunities he has, he doesn't have anymore. And uh, so the next thing we see there, it says, instead of entering the joy of the master, he's put into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's a reference to the parable we saw before uh, in the feast, the celebration, the wedding feast. Uh, those who are in it, the place is full of light, the place full of joy. Those outside it, it's dark. They're excluded from sharing the joy and glory of that millennial kingdom with Christ. So what's the weeping and gnashing of teeth? Just refers to the grief at realizing how great the loss is and then the anger or frustration at the failure to do something with what the opportunities that were given. So, um, so scripture over and over points, if we do what God calls us to do, we will reign with him and have glory in his kingdom. If we don't, we will suffer loss. So, uh, and of course you saw there in the last part of the second parable, the citizens uh, uh, who hated him and wouldn't have him reign, then there was a judgment of them that followed. So let's just finally, the last part I want to look at is what does it mean to be faithful? And I really feel that it's probably quite important to look at what that would look like and uh, the importance of faithfulness, uh, what it means, and then how I could do it. So why does God consider faithfulness so important? Why is it it's not your talent or your gift that's important? Why is he considers faithfulness? Now there's a whole number of reasons. Let me just give them and the scriptures are in the study so you can look at them yourself without me explaining too much. Number one, God himself is faithful. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, know the Lord your God is a faithful God. So it's the nature of God to be faithful, to be reliable, to be trustworthy. Secondly, Jesus himself modeled faithfulness. Of course he did because he came to represent what God is like. He was faithful. So in Hebrews 3, verse 1, consider holy brethren, the part and partakers of the heavenly calling or sharing in this heavenly or great calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus Christ, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just like Moses was faithful in all his house. So notice he identifies that we have a calling to share with Christ and Christ was faithful in what was entrusted to him. Thirdly, faithfulness is required of sons. It says Christ in Hebrews 3, 6, Christ was a son over his house, whose house we are if we hold the confidence and rejoicing firm to the end. So notice then, Jesus uh, was faithful as a son, and so if we're a son, we need to be faithful as well. The fourth thing, it says that faithfulness is required of all servants. So 1 Corinthians 4, 2, it's required, required of servants that after they've been checked, or fa they're found to be faithful. Next one, faithfulness is required also in all emerging leaders. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, uh, Paul's writing to Timothy, the things you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit them to faithful men who will reproduce or teach others. So you notice then very clearly all of these examples why faithfulness is considered important. 
Uh, in Galatians 5.22, it tells us faithfulness or faith, but actually the word can be translated faithfulness is a gift of the Spirit or a fruit of the Spirit, sorry. It is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, just as peace develops in our life as we yield to the Holy Spirit and love flows of our life as we yield to the Holy Spirit instead of reacting, also faithfulness develops in our life as we surrender to the Holy Spirit. He leads us to be faithful. So it's quite a good prayer to pray, Lord, today create in me a faithful and a loyal heart. Give me a heart that's faithful. Holy Spirit, I yield to you. Help me be faithful in what is entrusted to me. And it's not just church things, it's every aspect of your life. You're trusted with a house, be faithful in the stewarding of it and maintaining and looking out for it. Faithful with some children, be faithful in, in, uh, in, in your raising of them and in leading them towards the Lord. And uh, then, of course, Jesus will reward faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant. Faithful in few things, I'll make you ruler over many. See, so I've tried to just give you a quick overview. Faithfulness is everywhere in the Bible. Faithfulness from one end to another. And people are listed in the Bible as being faithful and they're trusted. So like Nehemiah, when Nehemiah had to leave the building of the, uh, of the walls and go back uh, and uh, for a season, he found faithful men he could entrust that wouldn't be bribed, wouldn't be corrupted, would be relied on to do the job. So faithfulness is always important. You, have a faith, you want a faithful man more than a talented man. So what does it mean to be faithful? Uh, faithful means to be uh, thorough in fulfilling the duties you're given. You're thorough and you're detailed and you follow them through. It can mean to do with your words. It means if you give your word, you keep it. That makes you a faithful person. You make a promise, you're reliable, you'll keep your word. That's a big one. It means, faithful means to maintain constant allegiance and, uh, and, and affection for someone. So in a marriage, you want to maintain, be faithful to your marriage. You maintain your heart affection to your spouse and there's no other people coming and the loyalty divided. And uh, faithfulness also means that you, 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 you commit to a standard and you stay there. So faithfulness will always hinge on what is important to you and uh, your commitment to it. So for us, uh, the, our destiny in the coming kingdom is important to us. Our destiny in the eternal kingdom is important to us. Being faithful to Christ is important to us. And so we've remained committed to that over the course of our life. Okay, then, so how can we develop faithfulness? How do you develop faithfulness? Let's look at a few practical things. The first thing is to understand is God is not looking for perfect people. There's no perfect people, no people that have it all together. They may look like it. He's just searching for people who will commit to him and then be faithful with what they do have. So faithfulness means being loyal and steady and dependable. And it's the fruit of having a heart that believes and trusts God. If you believe truly in your heart that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, you will diligently seek him. So faithfulness flows out of what we believe about the character of God and the goodness of God. So we're no longer looking at what people are doing, what people are saying. Our focus is Jesus himself. So it doesn't mean we'll be perfect. It doesn't mean we'll struggle. It doesn't mean we we'll, won't we'll make mistakes or decisions. It doesn't mean any of those things. It means simply this, that you're just going to continue to trust God and follow him. And do what he tells you. Isn't, that's not so hard, is it? Here's the big thing. You are unlimited in the amount of faithfulness you can have. So we might be limited in money, limited in our case in the time left, limited, uh, for example, in the, the resources or giftings you have, maybe limited in your education, 
But none of those things have any bearing to do with faithfulness. Faithfulness is a quality of your heart and character, and there's no limit on the degree you can be faithful with what's entrusted to you. So faithfulness is, uh, is cultivated in, a, in a, a whole number of different ways. Let me just list a few areas, just so you, you're, when you're thinking of faithfulness, it's not some sort of church-based thing. It's actually, you're looking at how you do life and how you handle what is entrusted to you. So simply, it means faithfulness is, can cultivate in all kinds of areas. Number one, your personal devotional life. In other words, maintaining the first affection towards Christ, maintaining your prayer life in secret, uh, keeping your secret life with God constant. You're, you're priesthood to Him. You, you are faithful to that. Uh, secondly, it means uh, that you obey Him in little matters. So when Jesus gives you just a little instruction, don't do this or do this, uh, you just follow His instructions. Even if you don't always see what the outcome is, basically you're choosing, my life is about pleasing God, not about keeping people happy or pleasing people. If I seek to please people, I will not be faithful to God because my desire for their approval or to please them will then put me in conflict with what God wants me to do. And that's very important when it comes to marriage and family. And often people make the mistake of putting family or their spouse first instead of actually yielded and obedient to the Lord first, which will direct you in a fruitful path. So um, uh, tree, uh, small tasks, uh, many people have the attitude if it's, if it's small, then it's uh, no value, it's insignificant. But if you treat every little task, it's my act of worship, it's my act of serving God, then you can just, whenever you do the task, you do it well, you do it excellent, you do it on time, you do it with care, and you develop the character of a faithful servant. And of course, you get promoted even naturally, that happens. Uh, faithfulness can be practiced and developed with your words. Do you keep your word? When you say you'll do something, do you do it? You establish a character of faithfulness. Uh, it means keeping confidences. Do you keep confidences? Someone shares a secret, a faithful man will keep the secret, unfaithful man will then share it and gossip it around. Do you keep God's word in your heart? That's another aspect of being faithful. God's words, holding on to them. Time. You, you can demonstrate faithfulness with time. Time is just like money. You steward it. So you give God the first portion of your time so that there's blessing and, and the rest of your time is set apart. So are you faithful in the use of your time? Do you consider time a, 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 a your asset to invest and then plan and prioritize your life? So if you just drift through days, you're not being faithful with time, you're not thinking how I can use it well, I only have a limited amount of time, I can never get any more. Finances, we can develop faithfulness in our finances by firstly bringing our finances to the Lord and declaring that they're His property, not ours. And then uh, I'm called to administer it. So if I'm going to administer it, I need to think about budget, I need to think about wisdom with uh, saving, I need to think about and learn how to invest, I need to then learn how to honor God with a portion of the finances. All of that's about faithfulness. It's not just to do with the tithe. Faithfulness has to do with your whole attitude and approach and stewardship of money. And of course, we steward our money well, we're in a position to bless others. And so we need to then, part of your stewardship and faithfulness as money is learning how to manage it and how to grow it. Uh, church family, uh, another area we develop faithfulness, which, other, which many people don't understand, is basically with church family. So God puts you in a family and that's where you learn faithfulness. So it means remaining loyal to leaders and, uh, and, and to the church family, especially when it's going through a hard time, instead of taking a walk. 
Uh, it means being reliable. You turn up, you attend, you participate. It means you're faithful in praying for the church, praying for its ministries. Uh, if you've got a responsibility there, which everyone should have, that you fulfill it. You do it and can be relied on to fulfill it. And then another aspect of faithfulness in church is when people are offended, when there are difficulties going on, you remain steadfast in the face of those things instead of becoming offended and feeding on gossip and then becoming uh, uh, literally out of the race. Uh, relationships, another place you demonstrate faithfulness in relationships. God gives us friends, gives us people, and those people are divine connections. So remain faithful to them, remain loyal to the people, support them, be there for them when they need you. It's, well, it's, these are quite simple things. Uh, if someone's being talked about, refuse to participate in gossip. All of these are just simple ways of demonstrating growing faithfulness. Another way you grow faithfulness is, is persevering, just perseverance. You stay true to God even when it's very difficult, even when it seems like you're alone, even when it seems like there's overwhelming pressures and difficulties. You just refuse to quit and turn away from what God said to do. You complete your assignment. So those are very practical ways that we can develop faithfulness as can be developed everywhere. So basically, if someone walks with God consistently and they humbly serve him, you can say they're faithful. They're a faithful servant and they will be qualified to rule over many things. In Revelation 3.21, Jesus said this, be zealous and repent. In other words, if you haven't been doing these things, be zealous, be passionate, be fervent, repent. To him who overcomes, and the context is lukewarmness and spiritual passivity and unfaithfulness, I'll grant to sit with me on my throne and reign with me as I also overcame and sat down with my father. So you notice then that the reward for faithfulness is assignments in the coming kingdom. And uh, also that the loss uh, of, of sharing in the kingdom will produce profound sorrow and regret at our loss. Now, some believers, because they don't understand what's at stake and minimize it, they think, well, if I don't reign with Christ, it's no big deal. You know, at least I'm saved. Now, that is a, this is why this parable is spoken. The person who thinks like that, I don't understand how this all works out, but they will suffer great loss. There's weeping for a reason. There's gnashing of teeth for a reason. There's darkness. There, all of these things indicate not about heaven, but about the grief and the sorrow of being excluded from what God had planned for those who love him. So the loss will be very significant. And the, those who suffer that loss will experience deep sorrow and regret. You don't want to be one of them. The whole point of these parables is don't be that man. Don't be that man. So uh, what God is looking for is, an, is that we be faithful. So then we get really just to the end of it. Uh, the, the, the clear application of this story is very, very clear. It's about the third servant who hid his talent, undervalued what he had and failed to serve. Whoever is like him will also be rebuked and excluded. Our lifetime is the test time. Our internship, your stewardship, this is it. You don't get a second run at it. This is your chance to develop the quality of faithful service, a faithful heart to God. And our use of time, how we use our time and our giftings and talents will determine if we enter or not and what level of participation and honor we have in that kingdom. Now, this is a challenge for many people, and a lot of Christians struggle with this. And there may be some listening to the, the message right now, and you're going to struggle with all of this. There are a number of reasons why people struggle. 
see if any one of these fits you. Number one, the story makes them uncomfortable. They don't like to think, I might be that man, I might be excluded, I might suffer loss. That doesn't mean it isn't true, and it doesn't mean it won't happen. The fact you're uncomfortable doesn't change the truth of the story. Jesus taught it to teach us to be ready and prepared and to be faithful. Secondly, another reason Christians don't like this parable too much is it places expectation to engage in spirit-led faithful service. There's a requirement put upon you. You can't just drift along, come and go, do what you want, run your life the way you want. There is a price now and eternally for that. Thirdly, another reason many Christians struggle with this passage is that they don't want to consider the possibility they could be the third servant. So therefore they come up with a theology that they must not be the, can't be a Christian, can't be a believer. God would not be that unkind. God would, this is not about the kindness of God. The kindness of God is in the, seen in the reward, is seen in the opportunities given to us, is seen in the fact that he's welcomed us into his family and given us the privilege of being able to serve. That's where the goodness of God is seen. We're talking here about the justice of God, that those who are faithful, their faithfulness is acknowledged. Those who are unfaithful, there is a cost and a consequence. It's all about the justice of God. And another reason people struggle with it is they don't have any understanding of the importance and value of eternal rewards. That's why we've run the series, so you see it for what it is, understand its significance, and see the warnings and the stories that Jesus gives. So what excuses are you making for engaging in faithful service? If you're failing to engage, you're failing to prepare. And there's many reasons that people have for that. And I'm going to list a few reasons. And whatever the reason is, it won't cut it when Jesus comes. He's just looking, were you faithful, were you fruitful? You can't come up with, well, I was afraid. That's an excuse. I was hurt in the past, and so I don't want to do any more. Uh, I wasn't thanked, I wasn't appreciated. I served and I gave and I gave my time and effort, wasn't appreciated. Uh, well, I got so little to contribute, really. I got nothing much and very little gifting. Um, I haven't got any training, I haven't got any abilities, I haven't got any, any finances. Uh, I was, uh, others were important. I had a family. I had to look after my family. I had, I had a business I was trying to run. Can you understand? We can come up with many, many things like that. Um, maybe, uh, perhaps you're just disappointed when you've seen how other believers have behaved. Perhaps you've been, there's been a delay in being fruitful and so you just got, got tired and weary and gave up. Uh, perhaps uh, you're struggling because you don't really believe that this is an important aspect of Jesus' teaching our stewardship for eternity. Uh, perhaps you're part of a doctrinal group where the focus is on grace, that everything is just given to us and we just have to enjoy what God's given rather than understanding responsibility and, and a commitment to maturity is needed. No one arrives faithful. You grow into becoming a faithful person. And perhaps for you, there's the, the, the excuses, there's a lack of understanding of the eternal significance of rewards. Well, I suggest you go back through the series and have a look at them so you understand, ask the Lord to write in your heart the value of these things. It is important that at His coming we be found faithful. In 1 Corinthians 4, 5, it is required of stewards that a man be found faithful. Faithfulness is something you can commit to, it's something you can develop, it's something you can grow, and it will show up in every area of your life with positive benefits. God bless. Trust you enjoyed this teaching.